Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Robert Lowe and Cherie Beasley? First, I'll look at the background of this case. I'll move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. Robert Arthur Selby Lowe was born in England, in 1937. When he was 19 years old, he attempted to run over a police officer with a stolen car. Robert was given a fine of 21 pounds. Sometime later, he moved to New Zealand, where he would be arrested for a number of charges, including theft, assault, and obscene exposure. He received a number of fines and served six months in prison. Robert moved to Australia in 1967 there he worked as a traveling salesperson. He married a woman named Lorraine and had two sons. Robert was described as articulate, well-mannered, polite, and he typically dressed in nice clothing. He was a church elder, a Sunday school teacher, and he coached a children's sports team. Despite his good reputation, Robert was unable to discontinue his criminal activity. He was arrested in Australia several times for theft and wardrobe malfunctions, so to speak. In November of 1984, Robert went to a psychotherapist named Margaret Hobbs after being arrested. Robert was hoping that Margaret could assess him and write a favorable letter to the court. Margaret Hobbs had been a parole officer at one time, but decided to change careers. She claimed to be a psychotherapist, and she worked with a number of men who had a criminal history similar to Robert. This was more or less her specialty. She was mostly able to interact with those men without appearing shocked, disgusted, or mortified, but she did appear to have a few boundary problems, which I'll talk about in a moment. Margaret found Robert to be creepy. He denied being responsible for the crime, but he did admit to having prior convictions. He said that he liked to shock people. Eventually, Margaret determined that Robert was a pathological liar. She indicated that he often lied by relying on technicalities. Robert received a year of probation, during which he continued to see Margaret. His sentence was completed in 1985. He would occasionally still meet with Margaret and talk to her on the phone. He enjoyed talking about how he would get away with various crimes, like how he could talk his way out of trouble. In April 1990, Robert was questioned by the police about an attempted kidnapping. He had stopped to talk to some girls. About a month later, he did the same thing, but this time he was tackled by the police and arrested. This occurred at a train station. Margaret was so disgusted by his crime that she abruptly asked him to leave therapy. Robert slammed the door on the way out. In November of 1990, Robert was convicted of harassment 
in connection with his behavior at the train station and given a fine. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On June 29, 1991, six-year-old Cherie Beasley was riding her bicycle in the Rosebud neighborhood of Melbourne, Australia. She had just visited a general store to purchase cigarettes and other items and was headed back to her residence. The cigarettes were for her mother. A boy was behind Cherie, also on a bicycle. Just before 2 p.m., Robert Lowe pulled up next to her in a blue Toyota Corolla, which was owned by his employer. He called out to Cherie, telling her to come here. He then exited his vehicle and put her in the car. The boy who was behind her did not understand what happened and was not able to identify the vehicle other than to say that it was blue. He said that Cherie was wearing a pink bike helmet when she was placed in the vehicle. Later, the police found two different witnesses who saw a girl in a pink helmet who was sitting in a blue hatchback. She appeared to be in distress. One witness said that the vehicle was a Toyota Corolla. It didn't take long for the police to identify Robert as a suspect based on the car he was driving. In addition, there was other evidence pointing to Robert. For example, no one could provide him with an alibi. On June 29, he told people that he was going to Rosebud to work on his vacation home. And his wife said that he arrived home after 5 p.m. that day and immediately put his clothes in the washing machine. This was the first time she had ever seen him do laundry. Robert's new laundry behavior didn't go over too well with his wife. She made him move out because she suspected he was guilty of murder. If he had also vacuumed, he may not have made it out of there alive. Robert lived in the vacation home from this point on. A few days after the kidnapping, Margaret heard about it on the news. She also heard the police were looking for a blue Toyota Corolla. Margaret suspected that Robert could have been involved because of his history and the fact that he had a vacation home in Rosebud, but she decided against doing anything at that time. On July 29, 1991, Robert Lowe arrived at a law firm in the same building where Margaret worked. The lawyer wasn't there, so the receptionist asked Margaret if she would like to talk to Robert. Margaret noticed that Robert was rude and upset. Later, the receptionist told Margaret that Robert had lingered nearby all day in a blue Toyota Corolla. Margaret considered herself to be a psychotherapist, therefore she believed that she was bound by confidentiality. However, she decided to provide an anonymous tip to the police. Anyway, the police quickly figured out who she was because she specifically referenced therapy in her tip. They confronted her, but she was somewhat reluctant to fully cooperate with the police. On September 24, 1991, about three months after Cherie was kidnapped, her body was found in a storm drain in the Red Hill neighborhood of Melbourne. This is about 15 minutes east of Rosebud. During a therapy session, Margaret mentioned to Robert that Cherie's body had been found. He insisted he didn't know the spot where they found her. He had never been there. Margaret never indicated the location. Over several therapy sessions, Margaret tried to get Robert to confess to the murder. At times, he would come close to confessing, only to stop at the last second, as if he was playing a game. On November 21, Margaret showed him a map and asked him to indicate where he thought the body was found. He marked the exact spot. On November 25, the police placed a listening device in Margaret's office without telling her. Robert continued to attend therapy appointments, 
he was highly distressed about how his wife had left him. He desperately wanted Lorraine to come back to him. He asked Margaret what would happen if he confessed to the murder in order to convince Lorraine to reconcile. Margaret lied to him and said that he would be charged with manslaughter and only serve about four years in prison. Robert said that he would consider confessing. He told Margaret that he blocked out bad memories. He wondered if he could have really shoved a body into a storm drain and not remember it. Then he said, I might have done it. I can't remember. During a therapy session in April 1992, Robert said, I could tell you how I was involved. He said that he offered Cherie a ride, and she mysteriously died while in the passenger seat of his vehicle. He immediately thought that he should bury her, but he didn't have a shovel. Therefore, he dumped her body in a storm drain. Later, he would admit that he strangled Cherie with his bare hands. Robert said that he wanted to retrace all the steps in the murder. Margaret agreed to go with him to do this. The police told Margaret that they would watch her the entire time, and they gave her a panic button. What Margaret did not know was that the police planted a listening device in her vehicle. Robert and Margaret went on this trip. They went to all the various locations associated with the crime. Margaret had been uncomfortable working with the police up to this point, but after this morbid road trip, she was eager to assist. She gave the police permission to record her sessions with Robert, which of course they had already been doing for some time. Robert was placed under arrest on March 31, 1993. The police gave his cellmate some type of audio recording device. The cellmate used it to record Robert confessing to the murder. Robert said that he had seen Cherie many times riding her bicycle. She was never supervised. He traveled to Rosebud on June 29 specifically to kidnap and murder her. Robert was convicted of murder and kidnapping on November 30, 1994. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 15 years. Margaret Hobbs had a tough time after Robert was convicted. She was criticized for breaching confidentiality, although many people thought of her as a hero. In addition, she struggled with having spent so much time with someone who committed such a heinous crime. On January 17, 1996, Margaret and her husband were in a motor vehicle when her husband lost consciousness and went off the road. Margaret was killed in the collision. Robert Lowe died in prison over 25 years later, on November 4, 2021. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads. But this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. 
We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now moving to my analysis. Here are my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Robert demonstrated a pattern of behavior which was becoming increasingly dangerous. He had a long history of indecent exposure, but then he started to actually talk to victims. Normally, he would put on a demonstration and leave the area, but over time, he started making requests to potential victims, like asking them if they wanted to have sex with him. Margaret noticed that Robert became increasingly disheveled. He had been careful with his attire, but now he didn't seem to care, almost like he was preoccupied and becoming reckless. In addition, Robert was fascinated with two other cases that involved death. One was the notorious Azaria Chamberlain case. This was a girl who was killed by a dingo in 1980. A dingo is a wild dog that stands up to two feet tall and can weigh over 40 pounds. Azaria's mother, who famously said, a dingo's got my baby, was wrongly convicted for murder in 1982. She was exonerated in 1988. Robert tried to visit the Chamberlain family and wrote a letter to Azaria's father, who responded by writing a letter to Margaret saying that Robert should never try to contact him again. Item number two, there was a good deal of controversy regarding Margaret's breach of confidentiality in this case. Robert argued that nothing he said to Margaret should have been used against him. Margaret repeatedly told him that their conversations were confidential. Further complicating this issue is the fact that Margaret was not actually a licensed psychotherapist of any type. The court decided that Margaret was an unqualified and self-styled psychotherapist. With this in mind, Margaret was not actually bound by any ethics. She was not a professional. Rather, she was somebody who was impersonating a professional. There is no code of ethics for impersonators. Robert didn't lose his appeal because Margaret was not actually a psychotherapist. He lost his appeal because the court decided that the relationship that a psychotherapist has with a client is not privileged or completely confidential. They found that confidentiality could be breached if there was a wider public interest. The legal standard, of course, is not necessarily the same as the ethical standard for any given mental health treatment profession. What a court decides and what guidelines mental health professionals follow may be completely different. Which takes me to item number three. What rules do psychotherapists follow for breaching confidentiality. The ethical rules for therapists are a little different depending on the specific profession and the jurisdiction. For the most part, therapeutic professions follow guidelines which were established in the famous case Tarasoff versus the Regents of the University of California. This case involved a 35-year-old man who told a mental health professional that he was going to kill a 19-year-old woman. The clinician did not warn the victim and the man murdered her. Even though this case was in California, it has influenced ethics all over the world. For example, it was referenced by the Australian court in the case of Robert Lowe. Here is a common interpretation of the Tarasoff case and subsequent similar cases. If a therapist determines that a client presents a serious danger of violence to another, the therapist incurs an obligation to use reasonable care to protect the intended victim against such danger. There is no prescribed course of action. The therapist has some freedom, 
but they do have to take some type of action. For example, they may notify the police or warn the intended victim. Typically, mental health clinicians are trained to do both. There must be an identified victim, so the therapist has to know who the target is. A general threat without naming a specific person is typically not enough to breach confidentiality. Once the decision to breach confidentiality is made, only the information necessary to protect the victim can be released. So the therapist can't call the police and say, my client is going to kill his ex-girlfriend, and by the way, when he was 11, he shoplifted from a local convenience store. This brings me to item number four. Did Margaret violate ethics when she breached confidentiality in the case of Robert Lowe? Here's how I think about this. Margaret wasn't actually a psychotherapist. Therefore, she was not bound by ethics. One could argue that she committed some type of fraud and that Robert was her victim. Perhaps he could have filed a lawsuit against her, although this would be largely an academic endeavor considering he was sentenced to life in prison. I guess one could say that in this case, one deceptive individual was deceived by another. The public was probably not overly concerned about this. Robert was, after all, a killer. He wasn't going to get any empathy because someone tricked him into confessing. Stepping away from Margaret's credentials, or lack thereof, would she have violated ethics if she was actually a licensed mental health clinician? This is a much more difficult ethical dilemma. Margaret would only be allowed to tell the authorities about Robert if he was going to harm someone in the future and the victim could be identified. What he did in the past doesn't matter. There was no identified victim for the future, so this is always going to be a problem ethically. But if some creativity is applied to these circumstances, one may be able to justify contacting the police. Here's how I would argue for a valid breach of confidentiality. As I mentioned in item number one, Robert's behavior was escalating. He appeared to be getting more impulsive, erratic, and was taking more chances. He was playing a little bit of a game with Margaret. A few examples, he asked her to arrange a meeting with his wife and children so they could help construct an alibi for him. He pretended like he didn't remember the details of the murder that he committed, and he wanted Margaret to accompany him to relive the crime. Again, they actually carried this out and traveled to these various areas associated with the crime. When considering all these actions, one could make the case that Robert was dangerous to Margaret. He made efforts to avoid being detected by the police. It's reasonable to believe that he would have harmed Margaret to protect his secret. This justification for breaching confidentiality glides on a razor's edge between unethical and ethical. But I think that one could make an adequate case to call the police. Not a great case, but Margaret could say that she was feeling as though she could be in danger. Another justification here would be that Robert was not actually receiving therapy. He was only going to Margaret so that he would have an audience. This also fits with the idea that she was in danger. She had now become part of his fantasy. Now moving to my final thoughts. If a person commits a serious crime, confessing it to anyone always creates risk. It doesn't matter if they are standing in a house alone. Someone could still be listening. It doesn't matter if the person they confess to as a therapist, a priest, or a lawyer. Confessing always comes with some risk because the person they confess to could say something to others. They could breach their code of ethics. 
one of the many downsides of being a criminal is having to keep a secret forever. The same narcissism that leads to many crimes leads to criminals wanting to share the details of their crimes. It is not as entertaining for them if they cannot gain recognition for their bad behavior. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.